All right, we're continuing our study through Christ in the Old Testament, and we have three, we're breaking that study into three smaller segments. Uh, The first one we've covered completely, which is uh, prophecies of Christ, and the second one we're currently in the middle of, which are um, Christophanies, or the actual appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. And the third section is yet ahead of us. It'll be a while before we get there, uh, which are the types and shadows of Christ that are woven throughout the the events of the Old Testament. So in the study of Christophanes, what we've done so far is just looked at the appearances of the Lord in uh, the book of Genesis, and we're about halfway through that. So this is... um, If you're looking for this study later, this is going to be titled Christophanes in Genesis Part 3, and uh, we'll no doubt do a Part 4. I've got a total of 11 Christophanes in Genesis still to cover, and I'm sure I won't get through all 11 of those tonight, so there'll be a Part 3 tonight and then a Part 4, Lord willing, next time. Uh, Just as a, a review Our definition, our working definition for Christophany is this. In a Christophany, and the word literally means or translates as appearance of Christ. In a Christophany, the Lord appeared in one location in an actual, visible, definite way. They are not permanent or lasting. And we're talking, of course, about all the appearances of the Lord in the Old Testament. They are not permanent or lasting, but temporary to that moment of history. So Christophanies are not an incarnation, but what I'm calling a presentation, where the Lord presents himself in, in a, a visible form, but he does so for different purposes in each one of the appearances. He appeared as a human or an angel, but did not actually become in that appearance either human or angel. And therefore, we can say he temporarily took the form but not the nature of a man or an angel. And those are the two primary ways that uh, the Lord appears in the Christophanies. He appears either as a human being, meaning the person that sees him thinks at first that they're interacting with a human being or thinks at first that they're interacting with an angel of God. And uh, for those appearances that are an appearance of an angel, the Lord as an angel they're, they're always identified by a special phrase, either the angel, the angel of the Lord, or the angel of God in a couple of cases. We'll be looking at uh, one of those uh, tonight in our study. So where we left off, we were in chapter 18 of Genesis, and that brings us to chapter 19 for our next appearance. And I'll just read three verses, 23 through 25, Uh, Briefly, the setting is, uh, remember back in the previous chapter, the Lord had appeared to Abraham and uh, did so along with two angels. They um, appeared at the tent of Abraham and sat with Abraham and ate a meal that Abraham prepared for them. And then the Lord, who was um, the, um, the... as Abraham was first looking at them, the central of these three figures, the Lord sent the other two who were actual angels. He sent them on to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah 
to evaluate the moral and spiritual condition of those cities. And then the Lord himself remained behind with Abraham and began a negotiation with Abraham as to the standard of judgment that would be applied in the judgment that he was about to pour out on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's where we left off. And now in chapter 19, this next appearance has to do with the actual outpouring of judgment from the Lord. And so let's read from chapter 19, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Remember the circumstance, the two angels rescued Lot and his family from the city of Sodom. And uh, rather than going completely out of the valley where those cities were located, Lot appealed to the angels and asked if he could turn aside to a small little town named Zoar on the edge of the valley that was about to be judged. And uh, the angels permitted him to find refuge there. So now it's sunrise and Lot has entered the city of Zoar. Therefore, the Lord is now free to pour out the judgment he intends on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we read in verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. All right, so verse 24 is the verse in which I see a Christophany being described. And it's easy to read this brief account of the actual judgment being poured out and miss the implications of the Christophany. Uh, Some of the Christophanies we've studied so far and some that are still ahead of us make it super clear that this is actually a Christophany that we're dealing with because you'll have wording like the Lord appeared to Abraham or the Lord appeared to one of the other individuals that he was making himself known to. Here in verse 24, you don't have that wording, but there is a clear implication of a Christophany, and it's because of the unusual way that is uh, revealed by the Lord to Moses, who is, of course, writing this account generations later under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And as Moses writes the account, what we have is a very unusual description of how the judgment was actually poured out. So paying close attention in verse 24, what we see is there are actually two lords that are identified in the verse. And the word Lord here translates the word, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of the Lord. So both occurrences of the word Lord in verse 24 is translating that Hebrew word Yahweh. And so what what we see is, Then Yahweh, or the Lord, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh, or the Lord, out of heaven. So in order to fully grasp and to not miss the implied detail here in verse 24, we have to keep in mind the last Christophany. And this is why I set it up the way that I did, which was the Lord was on the precipice of a, an overlook point, an, a kind of a, uh, a high point looking down into the valley where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were located. And he is 
negotiating with Abraham for the standard of judgment that would be applied in what he intended to accomplish in pouring out this judgment. And so there's no warning at the end of the last Christophany that the Lord has now, after appearing to Abraham, after eating the meal with him, after negotiating what he negotiated with Abraham, that the Lord then left and returned to heaven. He remained on earth because his work in this circumstance was not finished. His work would only be finished when he accomplished the outpouring of judgment upon the city that he intended to accomplish. And so what you have here is the Lord, uh, the best way I can describe it is simply, the first Lord that's mentioned here is the Lord on earth, who is then described as reigning on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from another Lord who is located in heaven. So you have two Lords. Now does this, in this um, description I'm using of two Lords, does this argue against, the, for instance, the, um, the great revelation in the law of God of the nature of the Lord? It's called in um, Israel's history, the Shema, and that's in the book of Deuteronomy, the uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Is this passage and my description of it as two lords being in focus here, is that arguing against the unity of the Lord that's revealed in Deuteronomy? And I would say no, because both of these lords are identified as Yahweh. And so the two of them that are in view here are consistent and completely unified in their essential nature. Yet, because we have the fullness, and this is only really because we have the fullness of New Covenant, New Testament, fuller revelation of the nature of God, we understand God to be revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet they share one essential nature. They are, in that sense, God the Father is Yahweh, God the Son is Yahweh, and even God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. And so what you have here is two of the persons of the triune God in view, one on earth, and which one of the persons of the triune God would be the Lord or Yahweh on earth in this circumstance? Clearly it would be the Son of God, it would be the Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate appearance as Yahweh, raining fire and brimstone, not directly. And this is what's interesting to me is that the Lord is present on heaven, but the fire and brimstone is coming vertically, so to speak, from heaven, not horizontally from the Lord on earth directly to the cities. It's not like some superhero kind of presentation where the Lord on earth is pouring out in a, in a horizontal way from his physical presence, this, the, the fire and brimstone toward the city. He is in right relationship with the Father God, who is in view as the second Yahweh here in this description, the one who then pours out the fire and brimstone from uh, the Lord in heaven, the Lord in heaven being God the Father. So God the Father, God the Son, both being involved in this particular outpouring of judgment. And as a result, the presentation of the Lord in this particular 
uh, Christophany, I'm going to identify as the Lord is the one who executes judgment. And the purpose is to, why would the Lord stay on earth for this uh, further revelation of himself in his presence? Is, I, I think it's very important for the Lord to show that he is the one who holds the peoples of the earth accountable, and he is the one who brings severe judgment in history, not just at the final judgment, which awaits all in the future, but he brings severe judgment in history upon those who are guilty of significant or what we would call severe sins. And certainly that was the circumstance in Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, later in the book of Jude, Jude comments on this in that exact same way. Let's, um, let's jump over to the book of Jude and read verse 7. The last book, of course, just before the book of Revelation. I'll read actually verse 6 and 7, uh, which gives us the whole uh, flow of the passage. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, meaning all of the cities that were located in this valley with the lone exception of Zoar, where Lot found refuge, the small little town on the edge of the valley, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That pursuit of unnatural desire, of course, was the pursuit of homosexuality. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the, the question we're meant to ask, I think we're meant to ask for each one of these Christophanies is, what is so important about this specific moment in history that the Lord deemed it worthy of a personal appearance on earth in order to highlight or bring kind of a, a heavenly spotlight on that event. And I think the event is that the Lord chose, and this is, this is some significant time after the flood in Noah's day, which was its own great example of severe judgment. He chose to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, they were fully deserving of his judgment, but they weren't the only cities on the face of the earth that deserved his judgment at that time in history. But he chose to judge them in this significant way and do so by a personal appearance on earth in order to make it clear and evident to all who would ever observe these, these cities and the devastation of that valley, which by the way, even to this day, if you go to that location, there is a sulfurous wasteland in that part of what we know as the promised land. And that judgment remains as an enduring example of the Lord's uh, standards of holiness and righteousness that he was holding the inhabitants of that area accountable to. All right, let's uh, move on to our next one then. In Genesis chapter 21. And now we're dealing with a, um, a very interesting 
Christophany, um, which is connected to an earlier one that we studied last week. But let's go ahead and read the, uh, let's read the account, and then I'll, I'll draw the connections that I think we're supposed to notice and compare it to the, the previous one as well. So we're reading from chapter 21, and I'll start in verse 12. And the context is there's trouble in covenantal paradise. Covenantal paradise at this moment is, is the Lord's great blessing that rests upon the tent of Abraham. Meaning at this moment in history, and this is true of every moment in history, by the way, every moment of history, there's never been a moment of history where this isn't true, where the Lord chooses to localize his blessing in a greater way and upon specific people and upon specific locations more than upon other people in other locations. For instance, at the very beginning of history, his greater blessing was localized not on, not on the face of the entire earth, but upon the Garden of Eden. Uh, during the days of Noah, it's localized in the, the Ark of Noah. That is the, the saving location among all locations on the face of the earth. And at this point in history, the single most blessed place and the single most blessed person on the face of the earth are Abraham and his tent. Now, later, the Lord is going to build his own tent, the tabernacle, and that will become the place of greatest blessing. And that will later be replaced by the, the temple, which will be the place of greatest blessing. And that will later be replaced, of course, by the new covenant temple, which is the church of which we're part, and we are among now the greatest blessed people on the face of the earth, and our corporate identity as the church is the location of God's greatest blessing. But here, Abraham's tent is equivalent to the Garden of Eden in a theological theme of God's covenant blessing. But not everything is, at this moment, as peaceful as it should be in paradise because Abraham has a wife who is unable to bear him children, naturally speaking. She's past childbearing age, and he's past child-generating age. And yet the Lord had previously promised and given him a special covenant promise that he would be the father of a multitude. And so what's happened at this point is there's a, an issue that arises as Sarah attempts to, um, attempts to uh, remedy that circumstance by having Abraham uh, have intimate relations with her handmaiden, Hagar. And the son of Abraham and Hagar is then produced, who is Ishmael. And at the beginning of this chapter, now the Lord in turn fulfills what he had originally promised, which was to give Abraham a son through Sarah, and that son is now Isaac. So that's the background. You've got a tent, which is supposed to be the most blessed place on the face of the earth, but you've got a mixed family. And the mixed family is you've got one father, but two mothers and two sons, and there's now some rivalry that's developed between the two mothers and ultimately will develop between the two sons. So that's our background, and we'll start, I said verse 9, but we'll, we'll start in verse, uh, I think I'll start reading in verse 8. Uh, sorry, no, I said verse 12, didn't I? But I'll, I'll go back to verse 8 just to get the, 
the context. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So the child of promise, the child of Abraham and Sarah is now old enough to be weaned. Verse 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, whom she had bore to Abraham laughing. The word laughing here translates the concept. It's not just he was enjoying himself at the party, the uh, weaning party, uh, but he was mocking he was mocking his younger half-brother Isaac. And Sarah was bothered by this son of her handmaiden mocking her son, who she knows is to be the son of promise, son of the covenant. So she said to Abraham, with a pretty harsh request at this point, cast out this slave woman with her son. Now to be cast out, of the tent of Abraham, remember it's the most blessed place on the face of the earth, would result in Abraham choosing to drive her away from his provision. He's providing everything for her needs and everything for Ishmael's needs. To be cast out would be to send her out into the wilderness on her own. That's what request Sarah makes. Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. He's thinking here of Ishmael. He loves Ishmael and he's concerned for him. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased. And at this point, when we hear God, when we read, but God said, we should understand that the Lord is now speaking to him, not just by uh, you know, sparking a thought of the Lord's will and the Lord's perspective in Abraham's mind. But there's no question here that we're meant to read this as Abraham hears the audible voice of God speaking to him. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So the Lord assures Abraham, uh, because he knows Abraham is hesitant to cast them out, and he assures him, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, don't worry, I have a purpose for the other son, Ishmael, also. It won't be as great of a purpose as I have for the, the son of promise, Isaac, but I have a promise. I mean, I have a purpose for him, and I'm promising you that I intend to uh, develop his descendants into a nation of their own. So he says, Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. Now he's, again, he's sending her out into the wilderness with bread. We don't know how much bread he loaded her down with. Probably it was a pretty good amount. But the total amount of water that he gave her was a skin of water. So what are we talking about here? You know, probably like a goat skin that's been sewed together and filled with water. That's a pretty good amount of water, but it's not life-sustaining long-term. So he's sending her out with short, what I would call short rations, 
And he's doing so with confidence that he's not doing an evil thing because the Lord has given him a command to do exactly this. He's doing this in faith and obedience now to the Lord. So he gave her bread, a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, and this is the proof that it wasn't all that much water, uh, she's now run out of the water for both herself and her son, and apparently there's no obvious water nearby. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, no doubt for shade and for some protection as she wants to get a little bit of distance from him in order to... um, in order to kind of emote. So, verse 16, Then she went away and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. Basically, I want to stay close enough to be aware of him, but I don't want to be too close to him because we're, we're dying here and he's going to die before me because he's much younger and I, don't, I, I just don't want to see it. I I don't want to be close when that happens. So she's essentially given up hope of even survival at this point. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And what's interesting at this point is a Christophany takes place. Verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And then this key phrase, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. And said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for for him from the land of Egypt. Now, that last description in verse 20, I don't think the Christophany extends that far. So what you have in the earlier verses, starting in verse 17 through 19, you have an actual temporary personal interaction with the angel of God revealing himself to her from heaven, speaking to her in an audible voice, making himself personally known to her in a way that the Lord does not make himself known to other people on the face of the earth. And then in verse 20, we see that God was with the boy as he grew up, meaning God never left him, but I don't believe he was personally, physically present with him all the days of his life until he reached adulthood. I think verse 20 is meant to be read simply as the presence of the Lord was with the boy, watching over the boy, providing for the boy in order to ensure the fulfillment of the promises that the Lord had made to Abraham about the boy. Now, what's interesting to me about this is you might remember from our study last week, we we saw a previous Christophany that was involving Hagar 
from an earlier chapter in the book of Genesis when uh, Hagar had uh, first run into issues before either of the sons were born, when she had first run into a, a strife issue with Sarah, and she ran away from the tent of Abraham out into the wilderness. And it is described in that earlier Christophany, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and led her back to the tent of Abraham for the fulfillment of the purposes that the Lord had for her life and the son that would be born to her and to Abraham. Here, the Lord reveals himself to her, but by, by a slightly different, but I think an importantly different name. There, it was the angel of the Lord that was revealed to her in a Christophany. Here, the angel of God from heaven is revealed to her in a Christophany. And the distinction is, in the first case, it's the angel of Yahweh. In this case, it's the angel of Elohim. So what's the distinction in the names? One is a covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. The other is the more general name of God known to all of the nations. And so what's happened between the first appearance to Hagar and the second one is, the first appearance, she still belonged to the household of Abraham. She still belonged within his tent. She was in the parameters of the covenantly blessed family. Yes, she was a servant, but considered by the Lord and by Abraham to be part of Abraham's family. Here, she has been removed from the circle of Abraham's family. At this moment, as the Lord appears to her, she is no longer part of his family. Therefore, unless she has her own covenant relationship with God, she has no access to the angel of Yahweh. But as God, who is God over the nations, he makes himself known to her and then he provides special provision and protection for her son because the Lord has a purpose for him as well, for Ishmael. And so in this, I identify the presentation of the Lord as the Lord revealing himself as the provider of the nations. Now, in this case, he's only providing for one specific nation, which is the nation that Ishmael is going to eventually grow into or develop into that's going to be produced from his descendants. But that nation is not a covenant nation. Nevertheless, the Lord has care, concern, protection, and provision for this nation, for it, that nation, under Ishmael to fulfill its own purpose in the earth. And then in terms of the purpose, I think uh, what we're meant to notice is that the Lord hears the prayers of the destitute even among the nations. Um, I want to link for this one a verse from the Psalms. Psalm 102, verse 17. I do believe that the Lord gives priority in listening to prayers of people that are praying on the face of the earth. I believe that the Lord gives priority to covenant prayers, meaning prayers prayed by those who are in covenant relationship with him. But I also believe that the Lord hears and will on occasion choose to respond in a way of actually answering their prayer to someone who is currently outside of covenant with him as long as they call on him in the way that the Lord calls for all peoples of the earth to call on him. 
And so in Psalm 102, I'll just read verse 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. So um, the Lord shows himself to be exceptionally gracious and merciful, even as Hagar and her son Ishmael are leaving the covenant blessing of being part of Abraham's family. All right, the next one then, one chapter deeper. We're in Genesis again, this time chapter 22. This is one of the most famous of all of the Christophanies for good reason. This is the circumstance where Abraham is going to be tested by the Lord to offer up his son Isaac in a sacrifice according to the Lord's instruction. The whole chapter is worth reading. Um, It starts in verse 1, and then I'll just read verse 1, and then uh, we'll skip down to uh, a little bit deeper into the chapter. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And at this point, the Lord gives him specific instructions, audible instructions to take his son and offer him on a specific mountain in the land of Moriah, which later will be known as Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, interestingly, just as a, this is really going to be part of, we'll we'll revisit this when we get to the types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. Mount Moriah itself has typological or symbolic significance in the telling of this story of the sacrifice of Isaac, and, and that's because Mount Moriah is the same location where Christ was later crucified. And this offering of Isaac as a sacrifice is a, is a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But let's skip down now to verse 9, and let me read a few verses from, let's say, 9 to 18. So Abraham is obeying the Lord. He's taking his son Isaac to this location, to Mount Moriah. And it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, the altar upon which his son would be sacrificed. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I mean, he hasn't even sacrificed his son yet in terms of actually raising the sacrificial knife and plunging it into the body of his son. But even his actions at this point are vivid in terms of the degree of faith and obedience that this took on Abraham's part. If you can imagine, he He's doing this with the full intention of following through and carrying out exactly all of what the Lord required of him. And even though, he, again, he hasn't actually killed his son yet, he is at this point in his actions as good as already there because he's built an altar upon which death happens. Altars are a place of death as we worship the Lord. He's built an off altar. He's He's bound his son. Why would you bind your son if you're going to sacrifice your son? It's so that the sacrifice can't escape from the altar. And so the son is bound. 
He's placed on the altar. And uh, verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And then verse 11 begins the Christophany. And, it's, and the Christophany is introduced to us with that clear description, the angel of the Lord appearing in this circumstance, but appearing here from heaven. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And, you know, we have to, the doubling of the name is important here because we have to keep in mind where we are in the, in the moment of what's happening. So the altar's already constructed. Isaac is bound. He's laid his son on top of the wood of the altar. He picks up the sacrificial knife to actually slay the sacrifice, which is his own son. And as he's doing so, it's kind of like he lifts the knife and he's poised to plunge it into his son. And suddenly he hears the angel of the Lord speaking to him from heaven in order to arrest him so that his knife, which is raised, doesn't start its downward journey into the body of his son. Abraham, Abraham, the angel of the Lord, calls to him from heaven. And he said, here I am. And he said, this is now the Lord in the Christophany speaking to him audibly. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, this isn't the main point of the Christophany, but it's a point that uh, some believers struggle with. What the Lord says to him here to, to explain why he is not to obey the earlier command of the Lord to offer his son as a sacrifice and actually slay his son is the Lord has essentially explained to him, this was just a test. Yes, it was a very severe and significant test that would test Abraham to the deepest limits of what a human being can be, how a human being can be tested by the Lord. But nevertheless, it's functioning as a test. And when the Lord says to him, for now I know that you fear God, some believers read that and think that this implies that up until this moment, the Lord was hoping that Abraham would respond in the, in the right way in that moment with full faith and full obedience, but the Lord didn't really know for sure until he saw Abraham actually do it. That's, of course, not the right way to read the text. Did the Lord know before Abraham even reached the mountain that when the moment came, Abraham would fully trust him and fully obey him and be willing to go even to the point of sacrificing his own son? Did the Lord know that in advance? And of course, yes, the Lord knows all things in advance. And so what we have here is a, a description using a theological term of, of, uh, that helps explain what the Lord is doing here. It's, it's called an anthropomorphism, which just simply means there are points at which we're dealing with the mysteries of God's nature. And one of the mysteries to us is how God could know all things in advance. It's mystery, mysterious to us because we do not know things in advance unless the Lord reveals them to us. And so at times, the Lord will communicate to us from the perspective that we can understand, meaning he puts, our, he puts himself like in, in, in human terms so that we can understand and relate to how he's interacting with us. So here he says, um, now I know that you fear God, 
seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So, the, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, continuing the Christophany here, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, emphasis on your only son for two reasons. One is Isaac is being covenantally distinguished by the Lord from Abraham's other natural son, who is Ishmael. So Ishmael was truly the son of Abraham, but the Lord now describes Isaac as if Abraham was only father to one son, because covenantally he is only the father to one son. But the, only, the other reason why I think it's significant that the Lord describes Isaac as you've not withheld your son, your only son, is because later, of course, in new covenant fulfillment, that this sacrifice only can point forward to as a symbol, as a type. The Father God himself will sacrifice his son, his only son, as the fulfillment of what this sacrifice was meant to portray and was meant to symbolize. So he says, you have, you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will, and he, he now proclaims special covenant blessings, but they're linked. They were conditional. They were linked to his faith and to his obedience. And now that his faith and obedience have been proven in his actions, the Lord pours out these covenant blessings upon him. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. All right, so I see here that the presentation of the Lord and I'm just following the, the emphasis that the Lord himself makes in this event. The Lord shows himself as saving provider. He provides not Isaac for the purposes of the sacrifice that was required, but the Lord provides a substitute for Isaac, which is the ram that was offered instead. And that ram then points forward to Christ in the, in the same way that Isaac symbolically points forward to Christ, the Lord Jesus becomes a substitute for the covenant people. They are not sacrificing themselves, but they are receiving the Lord's saving provision of a ram in their place. And then the purpose of the Lord, of course, is to provide a substitute sacrifice for Abraham and for all of the covenant people that are represented by him. Okay, let's go to the next one now in chapter, we're going to skip a chapter and then go to chapter 24. The next, uh, the next 
Christophany is now going to be connected as, as um, covenant progression is, is happening at this point in the account. Um, Abraham is passing on the covenant role to his son Isaac as Isaac is now an adult and he is old and uh, ready to go his way. We're going to read two verses. Um, All of the material in between is worth reading, but I just want to focus our attention on two verses from chapter 24. The first is uh, verse 7, and then we're going to skip down and read verse 24. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. The backstory is, of course, it's time for Isaac to be married. And so Abraham is about to send his servant to find Isaac's wife. He sends him on a journey. And here Abraham testifies that uh, when this took place, the Lord sent the servant but he did not send the servant alone. Naturally speaking, the servant was on that journey by himself. But here, what we discover is that servant was traveling with an unseen companion at this point, who is the angel of the Lord. Now, skipping down a little deeper into the chapter, we'll read verses 39 and 40. This is the servant now speaking. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. This is the woman that's now chosen as the wife of Isaac. Uh, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. So um, the story is an important one in the sense that Uh, The Lord has appeared more than once to Abraham and now he is making his presence known through the presence of his angel, the angel of the Lord, who accompanies the the servant of Abraham on his journey in order to ensure covenant continuity. Now I'll just read to you a comment, a brief comment from John Gill. This is a, a great Bible teacher from a much earlier generation of church history than our own. And uh, this is part of his commentary on this portion in Genesis chapter 24. And he he treats it in the right way. And this is the, the way I want to treat it as well. Some of these, what I'm identifying as Christophanies, are super clear that they are actual Christophanies. Others, like this one, could be interpreted either as just one of the ordinary angels, if you could ever describe an angel as being ordinary, one of the regular angels of heaven went with the servant of Abraham. That's possible. Or it's possible that this was a special angel, the special angel that accompanied him, which would be the angel of the Lord, and make it a Christophany. This was Gill's comment. Quote, this angel may be, excuse me, may be either understood of a created angel or of the uncreated angel, the Son of God, since the servant attributes his direction and success wholly to the Lord. 
So I can't be dogmatic on this specific one and say with certainty this chapter 24 account of the angel who accompanied the servant of Abraham was a Christophany and the angel of the Lord, but I'm treating it in that perspective, just leaving open the door for the possibility that uh, we may be reading into the text more than is actually there. So if this is a Christophany, then the presentation would be the Lord who goes before and with his servants when they are sent by the Lord on his assignments. The Lord who goes before his servants to make a way for them in their journey and goes with accompanying his servants whenever he sends them on an assignment. And then the purpose of the Lord, as I mentioned before, would be, in this case, the Lord ensuring covenant continuity from Abraham to the next generation, which is Isaac in this case. All right, so that's four we've covered. We've got enough time to do a fifth one. Let's go to chapter 26. This is also a Christophany in relationship to Isaac. And it starts in the first few verses of chapter 26. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> now, there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech. Gerar is a, a location in what later became known as the land of the Philistines in the days of King David, for instance. Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him. <clears throat> right, so now we have even more clarity than in the previous, um, the previous Christophany. This is an appearance of Yahweh. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. And he's referencing the land where he appears to Isaac and the land where Isaac was located at the moment of the appearance was the land of the Philistines. So sojourn in this land. Stay here. Don't leave here. Don't go any further south. So the land of the Philistines in Gerar was south of where Isaac had been in the land that was affected by famine. So Isaac journeyed south in order to find food, found some in the land of the Philistines, but the Lord tells him in this appearance don't go to Egypt, which indicates that Isaac was thinking of going further south in the Philistines land and going all the way down into Egypt. And for whatever unknown purpose at this point, unknown to us, the Lord didn't want him in Egypt. He wanted him to remain in the land of the Philistines. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. Again, this is a conditional blessing or a conditional promise that the Lord gives to Isaac. The condition is, had he left the Philistines land and gone further down to Egypt, or had he left and gone back to where the famine was in the north, the Lord would not have blessed him like he did by obeying the clear command of the Lord to sojourn in this land. So he says, sojourn in this land, I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations 
of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, that should remind us of one of the uh, interactions between the Lord and Abraham that we recently studied, which was back in chapter 12, where the Lord first made himself known, first spoke to Abraham and gave him his initial instructions and promised that if he would follow the Lord and trust the Lord and obey the Lord as the Lord directed his steps, that the Lord would eventually bless him and bless through him eventually all the nations or all the families of the earth. All right, so what we have here is a a circumstance in terms of the presentation, the Lord as the reassurer of his people. His people here are represented by Isaac. It's just an appearance to one covenant man. He's, he's one of the three great patriarchs, but at this moment, Isaac is the most important person on the face of the earth, and he's the one that has God's special focus and God's special attention. And God, in this crisis that Isaac finds himself in, a crisis that leads him out of the promised land. Now, eventually, the, the fullness of the promised land will include even the territory of the Philistines, but in terms of where Abraham had first camped when entering the promised land, because there was now famine there, Isaac left that land and went as far south as the Philistines. And in this circumstance, Isaac is not 100% sure of where he's to go or what he's to do. And the Lord, in that moment, as he's on his journey, stops him partway in his intended journey all the way to Egypt and stops him and tells him to stay in the furthest reaches of the promised land on the south, the, the land of the Philistines. And in doing so, he presents himself to Isaac as the one who reassures his people when they most need the Lord's reassurance. The purpose I see here is the Lord building faith into the heart of Isaac and ensuring that he um, trusts the Lord even in the extreme circumstance of famine. And of course, the Lord did faithfully provide for Isaac. He did not starve. His family did not starve. And uh, he eventually was the recipient of all of the covenant blessings that the Lord had promised to him. All right, I think we've got just enough time. Let me check here if we've got enough time for one more. Got just enough time for one last one. Chapter 28. This is another of the famous Christophanies. And this is now um, the focus passes from Isaac to the covenant son of Isaac, who is Jacob. And we're going to read the story that is known by the designation of Jacob's ladder, his experience of seeing a ladder, a heavenly ladder. So we're going to read from chapter 28, verse 10. <clears throat> Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, meaning they were traveling up and down this ladder. And behold, the Lord, Yahweh himself, stood 
above it. Now, this is a dream that Jacob has, but it's clearly what we should properly uh, distinguish as a spiritual dream. This isn't just Jacob's overactive nighttime imagination unfolding in his dreams. This is the Lord revealing himself to Jacob in the context of his dreams. In a similar way that we see other key moments in history where the Lord reveals himself to key individuals in a dream. Uh, This is what takes place here. So behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So those angels are not the Christophany. These are, again, regular heavenly angels that are moving back and forth between earth and heaven. And as they move, the Lord shows their transfer from earth to heaven to Jacob uh, in the form of a ladder that stretches from heaven to earth. Now, whether there actually is literally a spiritual ladder that stretches from earth to heaven and the angels can only travel from one location to the other by means of that ladder, uh, I don't think that's the point of the dream or the point of the vision that he sees in that dream. I think the point is that God is revealing to Jacob that heaven and earth are connected and that there is an exchange of spiritual resource between heaven and earth, and that resource takes the form of angels being sent from heaven to earth, and the ones that are traveling from the earth back to heaven are simply the ones that have fulfilled their assignment from the Lord on earth and now are returning to the Lord for further instruction, so to speak. And above the latter, meaning above all of this activity that's taking place in a transfer between heaven and earth, the Lord is revealed. And this is the Christophany in verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, or I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, meaning not that they need to be cleaned up because they're messy, but dust of the earth being so numerous that if you were to sit down and try to count all the little dust particles that are on the face of the earth, you would not be able to accomplish that. The point is the Lord is promising a tremendous um, multiplication of his covenant people eventually through the descendants of Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring. And this is a similar promise that he had originally made to Abraham and then a promise that we just saw in a previous Christophany that he rehearses to his son Isaac who is now Jacob's father. And now Isaac has died and that same blessing is communicated to Jacob. In you... And your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now that is not a promise saying, I'm only going to bless you for a certain amount of time. I'm only going to be with you for a certain amount of time. And then when I bring you back to the land, I'm going to abandon you. It's basically the Lord saying, You can trust me that on this journey that you're currently on, 
I will be with you. I will watch over you. I will give you my special and personal protection and provision, and I will bring you safely back to where you actually belong, to the land that I promised to your grandfather and the land that I promised to your father. I am, I am now promising that same land to you. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Meaning that in his vision, the ladder that he saw was extending from earth to up, upwards to the gate of heaven itself. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it, set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which is simply, you know, the house of God translated. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob goes ahead in the last few verses of the chapter and he makes his own covenant commitments to the Lord in response to the great blessings that the Lord has proclaimed about him. So uh, the presentation here, the presentation is the Lord as a ladder between heaven and earth. Now he's presented in the dream as standing above the ladder, but the ladder really represents his connection to the earth, his oversight of, of all the things that are unfolding on the face of the earth, and that the Lord is ultimately in charge of them. The point of the vision is heaven is in charge of earth, and things on the earth are not unfolding in a strictly horizontal, um, natural way of, of activities on the earth among the human race, Things are unfolding in history because the Lord is ultimately guiding them through the avenue, in this case of the dream, the vision of the angels that are being sent on assignment from heaven. And so the Lord makes himself known here, I believe, in uh, what we can call a bridge or a ladder between heaven and earth. And the purpose of this particular Christophany, I believe, is that he awakens for the first time, really, a heavenly perspective in Jacob's heart. Jacob has, up until this point in the story, not been the most deeply spiritual individual uh, that we've encountered so far in the book of Genesis. He doesn't start out, his story doesn't start out well. It gets there, and eventually he's, he's walking in a uh, truly deep and spiritual relationship with the Lord. But this is the beginning point of an inner, in, internal transformation, a transformation of his heart, of his spirit. Uh, and it, it begins by the Lord giving him this heavenly perspective of, of heaven's connection to the earth and all the things that are unfolding on the earth. All right, so that uh, brings us to the end of our study tonight. And we still have, we got six accomplished tonight. So next week, Lord willing, we'll be able to finish out the remainder of the Genesis Christophanies. We still have five more in Genesis. And if we have any time left over in our study next week, uh, we'll, we'll uh, press on beyond that and start looking at some of the Christophanies uh, further on beyond the book of Genesis, uh, which would take us to Exodus, of course. All right, God bless you.